Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we head into the last year of this decade. It's great to be part of a church where, you know, we have unity in the essentials and diversity in the non-essentials. And, you know, for those of us who can count to 20, um, we are... (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. So it's good to be with you this morning. I hope you all had a great Christmas celebrating together with your families uh, and friends as we celebrated uh, the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's great to be here as we kind of wrap up another year uh, here at Grace, another year where we get to look back at the many ways in which God has been at work and God has blessed and God has challenged, um, but uh, God has been faithful uh, throughout this entire year, and we look forward to another year uh, of faithfulness. You know, as I look at my life uh, over the, you know, my adult life, I've spent a good amount of my professional life working in places where urgent needs come up on a pretty regular basis, just pretty much part of my uh, normal routine throughout my day. I spent over 10 years running a crisis program uh, for Bucks and Montgomery counties. So as you can imagine, you know, working in crisis, you know, a lot of things come up pretty unexpectedly, pretty regularly, you know, and we kind of need to have the ability to respond to them. Now, I have the opportunity to be working in a school with some middle schoolers and high schoolers with some pretty significant needs, and urgent things tend to come up in that setting as well, which means that I have had to become pretty used to being interrupted on a pretty regular basis, uh, which means that uh, any time that I have uh, had to, that I've had sort of a larger task or a larger project or something that requires sort of a good amount of time uh, to be focused on, I need to be able to figure out ways to kind of break those things up into chunks that I can fit in between sort of the inevitable interruptions that I'm going to face on a day-to-day basis. And that's just part of life for me. But, you know, even though that's something that has become somewhat routine for me and somewhat expected for me, no one really likes being interrupted, right? Like nobody is really like hoping to be interrupted throughout their day. Unless maybe you're, you know, working on a task that you're just really hating and you're just hoping for something. I've had that happen. Certainly we're like, oh, you need me? Sure, I can put this aside and I I will come with you. Uh, But if you're not, unless unless you're working on something that you're just praying for something to take you away from, You don't really like to be interrupted um, because by definition, right, interruptions come at the worst possible time, right? Interruptions don't come about in your life when they are convenient. Otherwise, they wouldn't be interruptions. They would just be like this thing that happened today. If, if If an interruption is convenient, it's not an interruption. Interruptions happen when you're on the phone, you're on an important phone call or You're in the midst of a really important meeting or you're in the midst of a really big task or when you're being interviewed on BBC News. This is a triumph of democracy. Scandals happen all the time. The question is how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, And what will it mean for for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shifting (laughs) shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. The... um, my apologies. My apologies. North. Uh, 
North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited in the last six months to a year. So this, uh, so this is an interview with a guy named Robert Kelly, who's a professor, uh, and he's talking about the state, trying to talk about the state of South Korean politics. This is happening back in 2017, when his kids walk in and completely interrupt the interview. Um, and, uh, you know, if those of anybody who works from home, you might kind of fear your kids walking in the middle of a conference call or something like that, but probably not on live, you know, global TV. But there's so much to love about this video, right? This guy, he's all serious, his, you know, his office is all set up in this sort of, you know, very, uh, professional looking way. And then this girl just marches in. Like her march is like the best part of it. She's marching in, like arms going up and down, all confident as she charges into the room. And then, the, you know, I feel so bad for the dad because he's trying to be compassionate. He's sort of like trying to like shuffle her, you know, shuffle her away. And then the girl comes in with the walker, you know, in the, you know, behind her. And then the, the risky business sock slide of the mom, you know, coming into the room to try to get the kids out of the, you know, out of the room and then diving back in to shut the door. Like, there's just a lot to love about that video. And that went viral. You might have seen that uh, uh, already, because back in 2017, that pretty much went everywhere. Uh, And that guy got famous for the reasons he did not want to be famous for. Um, But um, chances are you have not been interrupted like this on national television. But we all experience interruptions in life from time to time. But the types of interruptions that we want to be talking about today are not, you know, we're not talking about just sort of the normal, annoying, day-to-day interruptions that we all face. You know, someone trying to talk to us when we're on the, when we're on the phone or interrupting a conversation that we're having. But the interruptions that we want to be spending some time talking about today are much more significant. The interruptions that we are talking about today are the moments in life that cause us to question significant elements of our life, significant elements of who we are. What are we doing with our lives? What are the choices that we've been making? What are the things that we believe to be true about ourselves, about our lives, about God? These are the types of interruptions that we're talking about today. We just came through the Christmas season where we really celebrated one of these interruptions in the life of Mary as she is told that she's going to bear and give birth to the Messiah. Certainly something that was much different than the plan that she had had uh, for her own life. But people encountering these life-altering interruptions in Scripture is not unique to the Christmas story. And the passage that Jean read for us this morning takes place in the life of a man named Saul who would eventually become known as Paul primarily throughout the New Testament. And Paul, us, we probably know him a little bit better as Paul, you know, writer of the bulk of the New Testament, missionary journeys, bringing the gospel to much of what was the known world at the time. That's probably most of what we kind of understand about, about Paul. But, but as, we, as we kind of are introduced to him in the book of Acts, he's known primarily as Saul. And to understand really what this interaction means in the life of Saul, we need to have a little bit of an understanding of who Saul was before we came to know him more as Paul. So some of the things that we know to be true of Saul, who will eventually be Paul, is that Paul, later on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, describes himself 
<clears throat> as a Pharisee. What does that mean? This would have placed Saul in what we would call the religious elite of the day. The Pharisees were a class of people that prided themselves on strict, strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And they were, you know, the people who set the examples of what adherence to the Old Testament law looked like. And would have been, so Saul would have been considered one of the religious leaders of his day. So he was part of what we would call the religious elite. He was also a Roman citizen, which would have placed him sort of in this class of society's elite. When we think about citizenship, it's a little bit different than what we think about citizenship here in the United States. You know, we're born in the United States, so we're automatically citizens. Um, and, you know, citizenship is something that, you know, is something that can be freely available to, to, for people to pursue here in the United States. Citizenship in Rome was a different thing and was only available to a certain, you know, class of people. And being a citizen in Rome puts Saul in a category of being society's elite, which gave him rights and privileges that were not enjoyed by the majority of other people, especially people that weren't located specifically in Rome. We're also told that Saul studied under a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. So not only was he a Pharisee, not only was he among the religious elite, but the training that he received was among the, among the best. He would have been like, you know, the Yale and Harvard, you know, in terms of religious, religious education, uh, of his day, um, which placed him then not just in the religious elite, not just in society's elite, but now in the educational elite of his day. And that training likely would have had a certain cost to it which probably meant that Saul had some level of wealth or his family had some level of wealth, which would place him in this sort of economic elite status. So as we see Saul, as he's heading into this encounter in Acts chapter 9 that he has with Jesus, he's part of the religious elite. He's part of society's elite. He's part of the, he's very well trained. He's part of the economic elite. So there's a very sort of complex theological term that we might use to describe Saul in this circumstance, and that's this. Saul is sitting pretty right now. Saul is not at a point in his life where he's looking to make any big life changes. He's not at a point in his life where he's looking and saying, you know, I really need to reevaluate my choices you know, with where I've ended up in my life. He's pretty much the man here. He finds himself not just in a position of influence and authority, but he's the one that the religious leaders have now entrusted to track down and arrest people that they're calling in this passage followers of the way, which is basically followers of Christ, Christians at the time. Paul is the one being entrusted by the religious leadership to track down followers of what they're considering to be a cult. And earlier in Acts, we actually see Saul looking on in approval as one of the early church leaders, Stephen, is murdered by stoning. But all of this, Saul's status, Saul's position, pretty much blows up when he takes a little trip to Damascus to hunt down Christians, as we just read in Acts chapter 9. And his cushy life is interrupted in a pretty shocking way by an encounter with Jesus. Why do you hate pizza so much? Because his claims are ridiculous. Because the idea that God would use him as an instrument of his will to spread the word of a new Messiah is, 
is ridiculous. How can people believe that the creator would choose a simple fisherman to articulate his message? No. No. He would choose a man who knew a world outside of a fishing village. Not a man who spreads lies about an imposter, Jesus, but a man who can add beauty and power and truth to his message. A man like... Do you persecute me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. No. 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 Damascus, you'll be told what to do. You know, it's easy to read this passage and even watch that clip and think that, you know, the temporary loss of sight is the only is is the major cost here when it comes to this interruption uh, in Saul's life. But that isn't the only cost, and it's not even the most significant cost uh, to Saul here in the midst of this. This interruption, this encounter that Saul has here with Jesus puts all of the things that we just talked about, all of the things that really made up the pillars of Saul's identity, put all of those things in jeopardy for Saul. Everything, or at least the major things that he thought his life was about, are no longer true. As we think about this, as we think about the cost of Jesus interrupting Saul's life, like this, there are a few things that jump out at us as very clear costs. And the first of these costs that we see is the cost of security. Saul is moving, and as we as we as you read on throughout Scripture in the life of Saul, will eventually become known as Paul, is moving from membership in what is sort of a very protected class of people to affiliation with perhaps what is the most vulnerable group of people on earth, at least from a human perspective. Secondly, the cost of Saul is the cost of status. Saul is going from being one of the most highly respected people in all of his social circles 
to literally being an outcast. Later in his life, he's going to have to be literally running for his life constantly. End up imprisoned multiple times and ultimately end up being executed. Saul has also lost control. In the second, Paul has gone from leading men on a mission to arrest Christians to having to be led by the hand to go where Jesus had commanded him to go. And lastly, Saul has certainly lost comfort. Saul will go from his life of privilege to one of extreme hardship. Listen to how he will one day describe his life after this interruption. Looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 31 says this. This is uh, Paul writing later on. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. A pretty significant shift in the life of Paul that all started back on this day where Jesus decided to step in and interrupt his life. All the things that used to define Saul's life are gone. His security, his status, his comfort, and his control. But here's the thing. This is the thing that interruptions, that these interruptions really do for us and really do, really did for Saul. They make us realize something. They make us realize that we never really had these things to begin with. There was a scene from a movie I was going to show, but it's a little bit too intense of a scene, so I'm not going to show it, but it's from a movie called Instinct. And um, this is a movie that stars Cuba Gooding Jr. as a psychiatrist and Anthony Hopkins uh, who's a character who plays an anthropologist who is accused of murder. And uh, Gooding's character as a psychiatrist is tasked with working with Hopkins in sort of an attempt to mitigate some of the circumstances of, of his crime by proving that he was not mentally sound at the time that he committed the crime. And in this scene, they're in, a, in sort of this cell, and uh, Hopkins' character is refusing to cooperate with the doctor And the doctor says to him, don't you see that I'm the one in control here? Don't you see that I'm the one who controls whether or not you ever get out of prison or not? Don't you see? You need to work with me. You need to cooperate with me. And at this point, Hopkins' character attacks the doctor and restrains him. And he refuses to let him go until he answers a question. And he asks this question to the doctor, what have I taken from you? And he's restrained in such a way that he can't speak, so he has to actually write his answers. So he writes this first answer down, that you've taken control. 
And he says, no, that's wrong. You never had control. You only had the illusion of control. So he writes down the second answer, and he writes freedom. And he says, freedom, you were never really free. You know, all the, the you go where other people tell you to go, all the responsibilities that you have in your life, you were never free. What, so I'm gonna, he says, I'm going to give you one last chance. What have I taken from you? Finally, he writes down the correct answer. He writes, my illusions. Because the whole purpose of this attack, the whole purpose of this scene was for Hopkins to show this doctor that you never had control. You never had freedom. All you ever had was the illusion of these things. And the reason I found this scene so powerful and the reason I was, wanted to talk about it this morning is because the real cost of life-altering interruptions in our lives as we encounter them is not freedom, is not control, is not status, but it's our illusions of those things. Saul left Jerusalem with the illusion of authority, with the illusion of control, with the illusion of status, and that illusion was quickly dispelled when Jesus appears to him. So much of our own lives are spent building up our own illusions in our lives. Illusions of safety, illusions of control, illusions of status. But these things aren't real. But we don't find out they're not real until we encounter a life-altering interruption. We likely will not encounter Jesus appearing to us on the road, but we probably have and it will again encounter some form of life-altering interruption. And the cost of those interruptions will be our illusions. But the reality is, in some ways, this cost isn't really a cost. It's a gift. Interruptions don't have to cost us our illusions. They can free us from them. And we see this throughout Scripture, people encountering significant interruptions to their lives in a variety of forms. One of the forms that we see interruption take in the Bible is the interruption of loss. Great example of this is Ruth and her sister-in-law, Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah. That is not a typo up there. Um, we see their lives interrupted when not only do they both lose their husbands, uh, but their father-in-law also dies, leaving their mother-in-law as a widow as well. And all of a sudden, what they thought their lives were going to look like is very different from what they look like now and what they will look like in the future. Another form of what we see interruption take in Scripture is the interruption of challenge. When we talk about the interruption of challenge, we're talking about someone or something that calls to our attention some way that we've been thinking or believing or acting or speaking that isn't right, that needs to change. And we see some great examples of this in the lives of King Saul, not the Saul we're speaking about from Acts 9, but King Saul from the Old Testament and the life of King David. Both of these kings of Israel had significant moments in their lives where prophets came to them and challenged them, pointing out a significant way that they had acted that God was not pleased with. <clears throat> a third in method of interruption we see in Scripture is the interruption of calling. The interruption of calling is when we see an individual who is called or given opportunities to do something significant in service to God. 
And we see some good examples of this in the lives of Moses and Jonah. Moses called by God to be his instrument of freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. And Jonah, as he's called to preach against the wickedness of the people of the city of Nineveh. The interesting thing about these three things, loss, challenge, calling, is that Saul experiences all of these things in the passage that we read this morning. Saul is interrupted with loss, the loss of his sight, certainly, but the loss of his illusions of control and his status. Saul's interrupted by challenge, as he's challenged that the persecution of Christians that he's involved with is wrong and needs to stop. And Saul is interrupted by the calling of God to be an instrument that God would use to carry the gospel message to the world. And these are the types of interruptions that we face too. We lose things and we lose people that are important to us. God may use people we love or his word or his spirit to challenge areas of our lives that are not pleasing to him when we act or we speak or we think or believe as we shouldn't. And God will call us as he places opportunities in front of us to impact others and the world for Christ in profound ways. But the real question comes down to this. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of discomfort, uncertainty, insecurity, fear, all of these things that these interruptions bring into our lives, in the midst of all of that, what do we do in response to them? You know, it's hard to really imagine the level of fear and insecurity and uncertainty that Saul must have been experiencing in the midst of this. You know, we, we, we fall into this trap, I think, as we read the Bible. We always know the end of the story. You know, if, if we've read the Bible and we've read throughout the rest of the New Testament, if you've read the rest of the book of Acts, you know, you know how Paul's story kind of works out. Uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to do it, you know, and read. We don't have time to go through all of, of Paul's life right now. But we kind of see, we know how God is going to use Paul in incredible ways. We see that. Saul doesn't see that here. Saul has no idea where his story is going. Saul has no idea how his story is going to unfold. That's where we're at when we encounter these life-altering interruptions in our lives. We have no idea how the story is going to unfold. But what do we do? As we look at examples that we've just identified in Scripture, it seems that we have one of two choices to make when we think about how we respond to interruptions. And those responses are this. We can cling to our illusions or attempt to rebuild our illusions in some way, or we can surrender our illusions. In loss, we see Orpah and Ruth. Orpah cling to the illusion of safety and returns to her homeland where things are going to be predictable and familiar. While Ruth surrenders to trust that God will provide, when she says this to her mother-in-law in in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, she says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you Ruth embraces the new story. In challenge, we see Saul cling to the illusion of authority and control that his crown 
provides. When Samuel challenges him for his disobedience to the commands of God. And Samuel tells him that God has taken the throne away from you. And Saul fights with all of his strength to keep the crown and the throne because he thought that's where the authority and that's where the status and that's where the security lied in my crown, not the fact that it was God who had placed the crown on his, God who had placed him on his throne. But when Nathan, the prophet Nathan, challenges King David over his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, David writes these words in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Repentance and surrender. In calling, Jonah clings to his own ideas and perceptions of who is worthy of God's mercy. And he runs from God's calling to preach from Nineveh. A lot of time we misunderstand Jonah running when God calls him. We think Jonah runs out of fear. Jonah doesn't run out of fear of the Ninevites. Jonah runs because he does not want God to forgive them. He does not want the Ninevites to repent. So he runs. But eventually, you know, when, when he, he does respond and ends up preaching to the Ninevites, he he gets probably, he's probably the most successful preacher of all time, gets an entire city to repent and turn back to God and listen to his response in Jonah chapter four. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. He would rather die than see God forgive the people of Nineveh. While Moses, after some brief objections, surrenders to God's calling and God uses him to bring the Israelites safely out of Egypt. When we encounter life-altering interruptions in our lives, we're faced with those same two choices. Do we cling to our illusions? Do we attempt to rebuild our illusions? Or do we surrender to the one who loves us more than we could ever know or understand? A little over three years ago, I was uh, working, uh, I'd been working at the same social service agency for going on 15 years. And I felt really good. I felt really good about where I was. I felt really good about what I was doing. I felt confident. I was, you know, my sort of sphere of influence in that world had been expanding. Um, You know, our program had been expanding. I had been invited to do trainings to, like, professionals all throughout the area. Um, And I felt like, you know, things are going so well. Things are going really good. Until one of the counties that fund our program came came to us and said, you know what? we really want to just combine this program with another program and really only just have one director for these programs. And then all of a sudden, you know, what I felt was pretty safe and secure, what I felt was like me having a a pretty influential spot in this world was gone and led into certainly one of the most stressful times in my life in recent years. And I had a choice to make as to whether to fight to cling to what was familiar or surrender to what God was going to do in this scenario. And there was a simple prayer 
that dominated much of my prayer life in the days and the weeks and the months uh, following that. And it certainly wasn't out of any sort of like spiritual maturity on my part, but more from a place of I don't know what else to say or do right now. But, and it was this, God, I am not in control. And I would just repeat that over and over and over again. I'm not in control. I'm not in control. In addition to it being a sort of a statement of surrender, it was also a reminder to myself, I'm not in control. I don't want to be in control. Now, the entire story of that time in my life is more than we have time for uh, this morning, but God did show me that he was indeed in control. And there were certainly times where I did not believe it. And there were dark times where I certainly doubted pretty heavily you know, God's involvement at that particular time in my life. But looking back now, I can see that he was indeed at work and this huge interruption of my plan for my life was actually something different. What started as an intrusion was actually an invitation. When I cling to my illusions, the interruptions in my life are nothing more than intrusions of, on what I have built or what I am building for myself. They're the obstacles to my plans, to the things that I need to overcome and conquer and beat back. They're the things that I will get angry about, angry at other people for getting in my way, angry at God for not working in the way that he should be working in this situation. It's where we say things like, how dare you say something like that to me? God has never shown up for me. God is not coming through for me. I can't serve him in that way. I can't believe that God would ask this of me. I can't forgive them, and I can't believe that that's something that would be required of me. I can't believe God would ask me to do that. Anger and bitterness, and we fight. But when we surrender our illusions and recognize that we are not in control, these things, we recognize that these things don't bring us security or peace or status. All of a sudden, what was an interruption or an intrusion is an invitation to something greater. Think about some of the greatest stories that you have heard. Stories, books, movies, the things that have sort of touched you and resonated with you and spoken to you. Chances are they likely begin, at least the interesting part, begins when some main character or main actor experiences some sort of significant life-altering interruption. These are just a few examples. Gandalf entrusts Frodo to take care of the ring of power. Luke receives a call for help from this unknown princess. Buttercup is kidnapped and then rescued, quote-unquote, by the dread pirate Roberts. Edmund Dantes is arrested in the Count of Monte Cristo. Alice falls down the rabbit hole. All of these interruptions were invitations for these characters into some of the greatest stories that we have known and loved. And their stories would have been much less interesting, certainly much less inspiring, had these characters responded differently to these interruptions. As we see in the examples of scripture that as people responded to interruptions as invitations, God works wonders in them and through them. 
Does God delight in our pain? No. Does God delight in our insecurity and our fear? No. But in these circumstances, God is inviting us into something greater. When we have loss, when we are challenged, when opportunities are placed in front of us, these interruptions of life represent invitations. First, to know God more fully. To experience him in our lives more profoundly. And to reflect him to the world in more powerful ways. Would you pray with me? Father, it's difficult in the midst of a significant interruption of our lives to say thank you for that interruption. To thank you for the work that you might be doing in the midst of it. But God, I pray that we might, that your, your spirit might be able to work in us to see the invitation in the midst of interruptions. Not that we enjoy pain, not that we enjoy loss, or that we seek it out, God, but that we seek your invitation in the midst of it. God, thank you that we are not alone, that you are at work, and that you are calling us continually to something greater. In Jesus' name.